1: Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell.
2: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. My name is Eric. I'm Travis Chappell's producer. And on today's episode, we are talking about SaaS success stories. We're sitting down with people like Tom Coulter who founded the award-winning Aweber Communications to help small businesses around the world better communicate build relationships with customers. Uh, He brought his business from zero to 1 million SaaS subscribers by connecting people and generating relationships. And then we've got folks like John Ferrara, who's a successful entrepreneur who launched Goldmine back in the 90s and launched Nimble CRM two decades later. He's been recognized by Forbes. And last but not least, we have Zvi Band, who is the co-founder and CEO of Contactually, which was founded in 2011 and has raised $12 million in venture backing. He's also the author of Success in Your Sphere. Uh, And he talks to us a little bit about what it was like to have a nine-figure buyout and how to build relationship capital. You're not going to want to miss any of these. We're talking through uh, some of the big software company success stories. And this really hits home with Travis because he launched a SaaS company this year called Guestio. It's uh, Guestio.com. So head over to that website right now, go check it out uh, and listen to this. If you're considering starting a company of your own, a uh, SaaS company specifically, but really any company, uh, you'll probably find something of value in this episode. And by the way, if you do, go ahead and take a screenshot of this episode and tag Travis Chapel on Instagram with the handle at Travis Chapel. All right, enjoy
0: the show. Talk to me about uh, the benefits and struggles of building a software company. This is top of mind for me right now because I mean by the time this episode comes out I will have launched my software and I find the industry to be just so so intriguing with the the business model, the gross margins and all that kind of stuff. The things that it has to offer. Can, can you talk a little bit into the, the benefits of starting a software company, and then what were some of the big struggles that uh, that you had to overcome?
3: You know, software has evolved a lot and continues to evolve a lot. You know, year over year, and even month to month in some cases. You know, I think the uh, gross margins that everyone talks about are evaporating <laughs> in many ways due to you know increased competition and just the cost of doing business, like what it requires in order to build a product these days is so much more than what it required to build, you know, the same product years ago. Like the things that you spend a lot of time on now are very different than the things you built, you know, years ago. So I think that that's evolving quickly. I think a lot of new folks don't necessarily take those into consideration. But at the same time, like there's things like we probably spend 20 to 30% of our engineering time on literally doing nothing other than preventing people from abusing our platform in some way, shape, or form. And that, you know, not every piece of software necessarily has that same issue as we do in the email space. At the end of the day, for us, is also a unique selling proposition of like we keep the bad guys off, which means you get really good deliverability. (laughs) But keeping the bad guys off is tricky. You know, there's a lot of people with a lot of economic incentive to try to do bad things. So we spend a lot of time making sure that our systems are tight to keep that sort of stuff off and to make sure that we're not restricting all the good users that we have. And we have a lot of them, as as you said in your opener there. At the end of the day, like software is something where, you know, particularly in a reoccurring SaaS model, software as a service model, it's, it's a reoccurring base. So like, it's very predictable, you know, it's very measurable in, in many ways you know so it has it has a lot of upsides and, I would, and it definitely can scale you know depending on what it is that you're selling with software if you're just selling software if there's some you know human components along with it i think there's more human components than many people realize you know even just supporting your software like we you know spend a lot of time and effort supporting our customers with our customer solutions team like we have 24 seven customer solutions operation, and like that's it both costs a lot both in like just the hour you know the base hourly paying the people but also like in training in tools and all the systems that you do to you know treat each of our customers as the individual that they are and not just like a monolithic number kind of thing and I think that that distinction shows when you do that right and we've run a lot of customer service awards so I think that comes through in, in a strong way you know I think over the years you know you kind of what was it you you asked uh, like what were the pitfalls of of growing a software company honestly I think most most people talk about too many of the positives and not enough of the negatives. <laughs> like the press in general and just the media overall, like kind of tends to like idolize entrepreneurship as this fabulous thing. And then, like when people get into like the thick and dirty of it, they realize like it's not quite as glamorous as it necessarily seems. And I'm certainly not complaining by any stretch. <laughs> You know, I have a good life. <laughs> um, but like, you know, there's lots of minutiae that you end up dealing with on a daily basis that, that most of the, the general public doesn't deal with, you know, whether it's, you know, hiring and, People management and systems management, and you know, dealing with vendors, and you know, committing to contracts long term that you probably shouldn't have, or you outgrow, and then you need to renegotiate, and you get screwed as a result. Like, there's lots of different ways that you know that are kind of downsides. Um, you know, I think uh, you know from like a struggle like you know one of my early struggles and kind of biggest mistakes if i went back to like the early days was like frankly not hiring soon enough as like a new business you know we i had the revenue and i was still running everything but because my hair was like on fire with trying to run everything i didn't dedicate the time Or the like, take the time to learn the best way to like hire someone initially. And that always seemed like a big scary thing to me. So I just kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off until at a certain point I just had to do it. There was just no way about it. But like a year and a half to two years into. Into having started a Weber with several thousand customers, I hired, I started I finally hired my first person. What position you hired first? Uh, customer solutions, <laughs> um, you know. And uh, I had so many customers at the time that like I'd spend all day. You know, helping customers, and then like in the evenings, I did marketing and accounting, and you know, you know, sales, and and all the other you know website building and software development, and all the other things that went into like building what I was building at the time, because I literally did the vast majority of myself. There's a little bit that was subcontracted. With of it was me. So I think that that's like, it's those toils that both in hiring sooner, but also just the toils and struggles that you have as an early entrepreneur, I don't think get talked about enough in the general media. And that everybody just looks at everybody as like, Oh, well, they're successful. Like that just happened overnight. Right. Right. I didn't take a day off for like, you know, almost 10 years, (laughs) like literally no days off. So I was working in some way, shape or form every single day, you know, but at the same time, like I don't look at work as necessarily work. And I even talk about that with my wife now, like my wife will go and watch like a TV show in the evening, like, i sit down at the computer again. And it's like, cause it's fun to me and I'm not like working on a particular project thing. It's like, I'm hacking around at something. I'm working on a comp for something or, you know, you know, researching something like it's just, it's the stuff that like stimulates my brain and is interesting and entertaining to me. It's not like something that I consider like work. I'm not like punching in and punching out. I think that's probably the biggest distinction that makes like a really successful business owner and someone that doesn't is like do something that you're passionate about, help people that you care for. You know, I think generally the results come as a result of having focused on those things first.
4: I just kept slugging it out, and, and the first few years was uh, was a hurdle. But eventually, we grew that company at about $100 million a year in revenue before we sold it.
0: Yeah. And how how did you go about getting started? The one thing that I think holds back a lot of people is just that. They just don't know where to start. Like, man, that sounds amazing. And I would love to do something like that. But where? How? What, what do I do next?
4: I think I think the first thing with an idea is like how to create it, right? How to build it. A lot of people come to me, oh, God, I got this idea for a mobile app. How do I, how do I build it? You know, any engineers? So I studied computer science, but I also had a friend of mine who he and I kind of took all our math classes together through college. He was an electrical engineer. I was computer science. But he was one of the smartest guys I knew. And I basically got together with him. And I'd been nurturing him over time and teaching him programming. And by the time we got together, he'd already written a few programs. So I had my product engineer guy so that he built it. But even after you build a product, how do you take it out of an apartment in Canoga Park and bring it to the world? So one way you could do it is advertising, but I didn't have any money to advertise. I didn't know how to advertise. The other way is you can get other people to sell it for you. And so where I worked at before this company called Banyan, I was selling network operating systems to enterprises direct, but I got my butt kicked by this company called Novell that was selling work group solutions through resellers. And so I already knew about Novell resellers. They'd already sold Networks to all the PC owners to tie together PCs and hard drives. And I actually had one of the first networkable business applications that ran on networks. And so I figured out that Novell resellers were the trusted advisor of my prospect. And if I could get them to use it, people sell what they know and they know what they use and they'd start to recommend it. So I cold called all the top resellers of Novell in the country and I got them to use it. And then they started to recommend and resell. And that got us to our first $100,000 a year in revenue. And then they started asking for leads. After they sold it to their basic customers and so i had to figure out how i can get leads and again i don't know how to advertise so i started calling up technology and business writers and saying how can i help you write more stories they said tell stories about how companies are using technology to grow. And so I started telling them stories about how customers are using contact Engine and Serum to grow. And they started writing about it. And ultimately we helped create the category because we created the category and we're the pioneer in it. We got more print and more awards and all the other companies combined. That built our global brand and, and got us to, say, know, $500,000 a month or $1 million dollars a month in revenue. But then Microsoft came out and ate Novell. They basically came out with NT server and they used their muscle, billions of users and hundreds of thousands of ours to essentially replaced Novell as the market leader. At the same time, our customers were asking us for a more scalable goldmine. Our backend was DBase, which was not a scalable SQL server. And Microsoft wanted to sell SQL Server and Exchange Server, so we built Goldmine Enterprise, which required Server, SQL Server, and Exchange Server to run solving our customers' need to scale, solving our partners' need to make more money on product and services for every goldmine sale, and solving Microsoft's need to sell NT Server, SQL Server, and Exchange Server because a customer's not going to buy SQL Server unless they have an application that calls for it. And then Microsoft started pushing us globally, and that's how we got to $100 million a year in revenue. And by that time, after running it for 10 years, I said, how much do you need in life, Travis? And I just decided at 39 that I'd sell it I sold it for cash and I retired and spent the next 10 years raising three kids.
0: So there's a lot in that story to unpack there, but I think the biggest recurring theme is resourcefulness combined with persistence or consistency, for lack of a better word, it just seems like that's the biggest thing. Because there's no one answer, right? Like I asked the question like, hey, how did you do it? And there was never like, oh, I I went to college for this thing. And I got qualified and certified that somebody told me that I'm allowed to do it now. It wasn't any of those things. It was just like, hey, I want to do it. And then thinking about how to solve the problems that existed in front of you. like, How do I get customers. Okay, let's start there. Then you went and got enough customers to have a viable business and you're bringing $100,000 a year. And then you start going to the next level, then you need you start realizing that these other things need to be done. And then to get on the highest level, you start solving bigger and bigger problems and it just seems like this recurring theme of resourcefulness combined with like the ability to stick in it and to be super super persistent. Am I missing anything there?
4: There are. There's some nuances there that you're missing. Number 1 is for me to be able to synthesize goldmine into a solution. I learned things in my jobs that I worked my way through college in because I worked at a computer store. I knew every software program on the market. There were only 300 business programs at the time. And I knew what I wanted didn't exist. And so I knew how to build. I knew I could build it. Number two is, I learned how customers buy software and stuff by working in the computer store. And I learned how companies sell technology by working at a software manufacturer and competing against the Novell resellers. All that gave me the lay of the land to be able to then do what I did. But the big thing that recurs in everything I said is telling stories and getting other people to tell those stories. So by telling stories about how the Novell resellers can grow and how they can transform their customers, by telling the press stories about how customers are using technology to grow, turn the novel resellers into storytellers for the, my first base of customers, and turn the technology and business publication writers into storytellers about how we can build or add customers at scale. And then finally, by becoming strategic to Microsoft, we basically turned them into a global storyteller where they dragged us into the distributors, resellers, and end users. So I think that storytelling and getting other people to tell those stories and building trusted relationships With the trusted advisor of your prospect is a recurring theme
0: that I've used at Goldmine and now at Nimble. I love that. Building relationships with the trusted advisor of your prospect. That is probably one of the most profound yet simple things that has been said on the show. Because a lot of this stuff, when you just look at it and take a step back, it just makes sense. But nobody thinks of it. You know, like they they build a product and then try to shove it down a customer's throat instead of saying, hey, what do they actually need? And then building a product that actually makes that make sense. And then sharing credibility from people that they are already trusting as advisors, like that is exactly why this show exists is to show people what's possible. So besides storytelling, John, what do you think are another, let's say two to three important skill sets that every entrepreneur needs to develop at least to a level of competency?
4: Well, I think that companies don't scale themselves it's done by people. And you need to build a great culture in your company. You want to build a place where people, they love to come to because they're being transformed themselves. And so um, that's a big part of it. But on the product side, you're talking about product. And I, I want to tell you a story about product. I believe that people don't buy great products. They buy better versions of themselves. And that people should stop talking about themselves and their product and they should start talking about how they can help other people become better, smarter, faster in and around the areas of promise of their products and services. I believe that if you teach people to fish, they'll figure out yourself fishing poles and that you should align the promises that you make to experience that you deliver. And if you do all those things, you can build a gold mine. problem is, is that most people are just blasting out how great they are, how great their products are, and they're not really focused on their intention to serve others. And I believe in a philosophy of service. I think that we're on this planet to grow our souls by helping other people grow theirs. And if salespeople entered into every relationship, well, forget salespeople. If every human being entered into every engagement with the intent to serve that other person, to help them grow, even if it meant simply giving them their presence and leaving them with a smile, that the world would be a better place. And I think that today sales is a four-letter word and I think service is the new sales.
0: Yeah, I love that so much. And what what about like what what are your thoughts on competition versus collaboration?
4: Well, you know, the funny thing is is that some people would say that Microsoft Dynamics is competition to Nimble. But the reality is that Microsoft has signed a global reseller agreement with Nimble where they're globally reselling Nimble with Office 365. They are my distributor. If I want to sign up a new reseller, I don't have to even sign a contract. I just need to tell them the value that Nimble provides their customers and they can buy it through Microsoft when they buy Office. And for Microsoft to do that, they'd have to recognize that we're not a competitor and that Nimble actually is a gateway drug to Dynamics. If you think about it, Every single Microsoft reseller is given a license of Dynamics CRM and none of them use it. Why? Because big CRMs like Salesforce and Dynamics need to be implemented. And most people don't have the ability or bandwidth to implement a CRM. They want a CRM that automatically implements itself. And that's what Nimble does by unifying your email, contact and calendar and over 200 SaaS business apps into a cohesive team relationship manager. So we fill a hole for Microsoft as the simple CRM for Office. And then we introduce people to the concepts and products of Microsoft's Crown Jewels, which is Power BI Flow, Power Apps, Azure, and Dynamics. So I totally believe in collaborating, even if it is with your competition. In fact, I think that if any salesperson's listening to this today and they ever have an opportunity where they're talking to a customer and they're not a good fit, they should recommend their competition that is a good fit. Because if you take care of that customer, even if it means recommending a competitor, You don't think that person's going to pick up the phone or tell their friends about you in the future when their needs might fit yours? Right.
0: Yeah, totally. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors This episode of the
2: Build Your Network podcast will be back in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job descriptions, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements, I personally love Indeed. It makes it easy to hire great talent. And according to Comscore, Indeed is the number one job site worldwide. That's right, worldwide. So start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash network. The offer is valid through March 31st. So what are you waiting for? Go to Indeed.com network and claim $75 in free credit before March 31st. That's indeed.com slash network. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. This episode of the Build Your Network podcast is brought to you by Gusto, the all-in-one HR for growing businesses. You can get everything you need to hire, pay, manage, and support your hardworking team in one intuitive platform. You can automatically file and pay all state, local, and federal payroll taxes, do simple time tracking, time off requests, and more, and have access to a wide range of health and financial benefits and direct access to certified HR experts. That's just a few of the amazing tools that you get with Gusto. And right now, you can get three months free when you run your first payroll. All you have to do is use the URL, gusto.com slash Travis. That's G-U-S-T-O
0: dot slash Travis. All right, let's get back to the show. That's why I asked that question. I just see like, I see a big shift happening. And a lot of people who are in the older mindset of Only competing and never, I just think it's so damaging and comes from this place of scarcity where they have this belief that there's not enough business to go around.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, is that there is so much business out there that any competent person that builds a minimally viable product and listens and iterates with their customers that it resonates and then builds with them, can grow into a billion-dollar company. There's a company called Cornerstone On Demand. They used to be a uh, content-sharing platform for e-learning. Kind of like Linda or whatever. And they had funding and they built the platform, but they weren't getting people to put content up there and they weren't getting traction. But they were getting adoption by corporations that were moving their on-prem learning systems to the cloud. And so what they did is they iterated with that customer base and now they become the leading corporate human resource learning system management system in the world. And that's just an example of listening to and iterating with your customers.
0: You've been working on this book deal for a little bit longer than that. You said three, four years now that you've been working on the book. Yeah. How did that come about? Did, was that something that you really pushed for? I know that you really enjoy the writing process, everything, were you pushing for a book? Was the company pushing you to write a book for better publicity for the company?
5: Yeah, a few things. So yeah, we started working, or at least started the idea behind a book in February of 2015. Um, So yeah, it was basically about a four-year process. So one of the things that we knew with Contactually is that when it comes to convincing people to use our product, it's not saying, hey, our product is so much better than X, Y, Z out there. We weren't necessarily like that. The market space wasn't there for that. It was more convincing people to use something like this Period. Yeah. Like, going back to your first question, why are relationships so important? Why you need to be strategic around it? Why do you need tools to for to help you nurture your relationships? Yeah. And so that was that was something we realized early on. We had to convince them why they needed something like this in the first place versus like ex- using Excel or something. And so thought leadership was definitely a, a key tenet of our overall growth plan. And so as we were thinking about different ideas about how we could build thought leadership, the idea for a book came about. Like um, Just like the HubSpot founders, they wrote inbound marketing. They, in order to make HubSpot, successful, they had to almost establish the field of inbound marketing. Gainsight has done that around customer success. So he said, hey, like for us, we kind of need to like establish this field of relationship marketing in order for people to think about needing tools for it. So the idea of her book came about. I was definitely really passionate about it. I mean, I knew and my early investors were very much gung ho on saying, hey, V, your job is CEO almost above anything else is to drive thought leadership. So that's that's a really important thing that you need to be able to do. And so, yeah, I basically took it on me. This was like a nights and weekends project for like four years wow. to get out. Yeah, I could have hired ghostwriters and their great services. As it happens going back, I do love to write. That's something I've had from very early on. So it was a lot more work for myself, but I ended up deciding to write it.
0: Yeah, yeah. What would you advise to anybody out there that's looking about. That's that's thinking about going through the book writing process in terms of start to finish, like publisher, no publisher, ghostwriter, no ghostwriter. Like kind of yeah, high you know overarching themes here. Yeah, advice for anybody writing a book out there.
5: So your flight out is at six o'clock. So do we ha- do we have enough time for <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah, I'll give a couple high points. I mean, one, you have to believe in it, right? You have to believe in the idea behind a book, and not just treat this as a marketing tool. It's an incredibly strenuous process. So I happen to, again, I love writing. I wanted this out. I believe enough in our space yeah, that right. I I wanted to capture everything we had learned. I knew books outlive software. So I knew this is a book that like my children will hopefully one day read. Please, if you're looking at this, please read this. Please, <laughs> it'll, it'll help you, I promise. And obviously, if you want to have a book, you don't necessarily need to write one yourself. So you obviously can do that. There are ghostwriting services and guided author services you can use. As for publisher versus no publisher. Again, there's no right or wrong answer. Anyone can go online and publish a book these days, but at the same time, anyone can go online and publish a book, right? So we, because we're trying to establish thought leadership, we said, hey, it's best to align ourselves and get like that good housekeeping seal of approval. And so yeah, like a big reason why we end up going with a major publisher is, you know, honestly like, you know, this little red square McGraw-Hill on it because this is part of their catalog forever this is now like them saying, hey, we believe this is the book on relationship marketing. And I hope this lives on. Right. So it's a
0: credible source.
5: Exactly. Yeah
0: top two or three (laughs) insights, tips, strategies that you want people to take away from the book?
5: Yeah, absolutely. And obviously the book walks through the the overall strategic nature of relationship building. The reason why I wrote this book, or the reason why it's important to have a book in general beyond just the thought leadership work is um, what we realized with Contactually is that we built a really great tool, but just having great tools doesn't necessarily always help. Like having a great knife, doesn't make you a great chef. Right. And so you have to learn how to cook and you have to have the practice and everything like that and the strategy. So that's why, So that's kind of what the book, kind of how the book complements the software or any other tools you might be using. This is not just a user manual for contextually Top two or three takeaways. I'd say like one, relationships are your most important asset, but you need, especially given all the pushback and challenges that we face, especially nowadays, you need to be strategic around nurturing the relationships that are gonna be important for your business, your job, your career, that's one. Two, you need to identify your clear goals and all of us will have different goals out of our network. And then from there, we can kind of, you know, just identify strategies that we can implement on a daily basis that will help us achieve those goals.
0: Got it. So how, this is a question I'm really curious curious to hear your answer. Yeah. Because I agree with you on you need to be strategic about the relationships that you are building. However, I've seen a lot of people do this really incorrectly, meaning that they build strategic relationships, but it's just very clear that they're building strategic relationships. Yeah. If that makes sense. Right? So how do you go about building strategic relationships without losing the personal like, I genuinely care about this person touch to building those relationships. Does that make sense?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, that's where, um, and there's definitely a number of aspects. And at the same time, a lot of people sometimes don't implement a strategy because they're so worried that they will come across as transactional they'll they'll word, they'll come across as transactional and not relational right? right so one of the specific topics that we do talk about it's the second a in capital adding value we talk about how every interaction should be meaningful relevant and authentic and so that is truly caring about this right you and i could have sat down today I could have gotten what I want out of it, right? Just I get some more footage. You could have gotten what you all want out of it, which is just more content to kind of, you increase your, increase your library. And that's it. But instead we're having a conversation here and I was expressing genuine interest in how I can make you successful, right? So we already listed a few names of people that you should interview that I'd be more than happy to interview. In customer relationships, right? um, We, uh, when, you know, as CEO, one of my roles at contact, was also to stay engaged with our customers. And it wasn't necessarily, and one of the mindsets I had to get into is I don't want to necessarily just get them to renew and solve any problems that blocking them from renewing their customer contract. But I truly wanted them to be successful. I wanted their company and their business to be successful. So I think if we just take a step out of the transaction and really focus on the person, it naturally comes in. I mean, one of the other things that we, you know, that we talk about is uh, in the iron capital is investigate. That's also, again, a small little thing that we can talk about, right? You know, again, casual small talk. You're coming from Toronto. You are, um, you live in Vegas okay, well, you know, I completely forget about that, but who are the interesting people that I know in Vegas, right? I'm going to write down, you know, in my CRM, you live in Vegas, you are in Toronto, you're traveling around in person doing these video interviews. Who are the people that I can introduce that would be valuable? Rather than just saying, oh yeah, I got my footage I want. And like, you know, just, I completely forget about it. So it's small little things like that, that can make a huge, huge difference.
0: Yeah. What's your take on, I actually just had a couple people ask me this question yesterday. In terms of small talk versus going deeper in relationships, how quick should that transition be? Should there be a lot of time living in the small talk area? What, what would be your opinion on that?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think small talk is one of the most valuable things ever. It's not something that I would say as long as it's just, as long as it's captured. Otherwise, if it's just like, yeah, like, you know, Uber was late here, traffic was late, it's hot outside... And you completely forget about it, yeah. that's very different. But if you yeah. capture that and you try and figure out how you can leverage that later on, yeah. that makes a difference. And also that allows you to open up and ask really great questions. Right. One of the stories that we talk about in the book is uh, I was meeting someone who uh, I wanted to work with and we, um, for coffee, and again, just Casual small talk, just talking about what our weekend plans were. Mentioned that he was spending the weekend shuttling kids to a basketball tournament, right? Again, like, that's, like, one of the things, like, that's, you know, 50% chance that a parent is going to say shuttling their kids around to some kind of sports event. Right. But... I made a second to ask him, like, oh, do you kids play basketball? And he said, like, yeah, like, you know, my eldest is really into basketball. He's in a free throw tournament. You know, he takes it really seriously. Like, he wants to play seriously later on in life. I made a point. Again, I could have completely forgotten about that. But I asked the question and I wrote down the answer. And when I want to follow up with him and send him a thank you for meeting with me, instead of sending him the normal, like, thank you, Stephen. It was great to meet you. I went on Amazon, spent $10, just $10, and... Had a basketball ship to his house.. Yeah. Completely different relationship. Years later, he is still referring business to me because I did that one little thing mm-hmm. that I showed I care. It's all these little things. You know, I've had like wealth managers who will learn I'm having a kid and send me a book, like a kid's book. And like small little things like that, like can go an incredibly long way to stand out from the crowd that don't take a lot more work. Don't take a lot more time. Don't take a lot more money, but just show that I truly care about you, not just the
0: dollars in your wallet. Right, right. So I know this is something that we talked about last time because this is a question I ask every guest that comes on the show, so I'm sure I asked you. But it has been a couple of years. I'm sure your answer has not changed, but i got to ask it anyway. It may
5: have. Who okay. knows?
0: All right, we'll see. Who you know or what you know? Which one is more important?
5: Yeah, that's probably pretty easy. Like I do believe it's uh, it's who you know, but of course I can interweave it, but it's what you know about who you know. Okay. Yeah, I do believe that our, we're in a world where the skills and knowledge we have are table stakes it's no longer about the knowledge that we have but it's around our ability to seek the knowledge when you and i went to school it was all about like rote memorization of state capitals and geometry and things like that but like nowadays you know when i can just open up my phone or even my watch and kind of get the answer it's more, much more about searching. We were obviously, like, uh, one of our biggest markets uh, was residential real estate, and you see it very permanently there. I me- remember when my parents were buying their house, we would, I would run down to the fax machine every morning when I would hear buzzing because that was our agent faxing us MLS listings. And that was the only way to get the information. And nowadays, I can pull up in front of any property, open up the Compass application, and see more about that house and the neighborhood and look at crime stats than my agent ever could know. So yeah, I do believe that if the knowledge gap is gone and the skills gap is gone, our reputation is really our last and best competitive advantage. Yeah, that's such
0: a fantastic way to look at it. So tell, tell us about a time in your life... Where, like a big opportunity or moment of success came from a relationship or a connection that you that you had.
5: Yeah, I mean, very clearly, I would not be here in many ways. I would not be where we are today solely without relationships. Can I give two stories? Yeah, please. So I left uh, in around 2008. I left my job rather abruptly, um, and I was kind of like just wasn't the right fit, looking for something new. Turns out this is actually the day. I think it was the Federal Reserve or some some government agency officially declared that we were in a recession. <laughs> so great timing for me yeah, yeah. to be on the job market, but didn't have any job prospects, wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I did the only thing that I know how to do, which is reach out to people that I know. And within a matter of a, a couple months, I you know, had a fully- fully booked list of clients and projects and things to take on. I got introduced to a, um, I got introduced to an entrepreneur who had just raised funding and needed a CTO. And here I was perfect developer, perfect guy who could be a CTO and being CTO of that company, right? Mm-hmm. Amazing, amazing experience. So that's kind of one. Fast forward a little bit later, Actually, you know, we had a number of thing headwinds against us. You know, I was the first, how much more? Didn't necessarily know, and wasn't very good at fundraising. We we're based in DC, not a great market for raising capital. We we're building this product in this new market that, like, so funding was generally a very hard thing. And so we were at the point where we really needed to raise capital, and we weren't having much success. And turns out, one of our users, a guy named Evan was a really big fan of us. He and I happened to be talking, and I happened to mention that he uh, that we were raising a round of capital, and he ended up introducing me to the one investor that basically opened the floodgates and let us have a oversubscribed funding round in 2014. If it weren't for that, we may not have made it, right? right? We may not have been able to raise capital. Yeah. Um, and so there are so many stories like that over the course of my career that I've showed me that